Today, because it's, this is a subject which, as I'm going to hopefully explain, is a bit of a subtle issue. I'm going to spend quite a long time with a pretty extensive introduction. So don't be scared that I'm a sort of preacher who doesn't want to use the Bible because it's going to take ages to get to the Bible. Um, it's not my wisdom at all, it's God's wisdom. But before we get there, what I want to do is really work hard at teasing out what this problem is, get under our skin, help us to understand something of self-obsession and then get to what God's word has to say about it. Because if we don't understand the problem, it's going to be hard for us to really believe that the words in the Bible are relevant and, uh, and important for us. So that's where we're going to go today. just want to start by asking if any of you here have a phobia, which you're prepared to share. <laughs> Steph's phobia is uh, spiders. Doesn't like spiders, so I'm the spider catcher in our home. Any of you have a phobia? Yep. Traveling. Traveling. Okay. Do you know what that's called? No. I don't know either, but okay. Anyone else have a phobia? Germs. Yeah. Hey, germs. Good man. <laughs> fist pumps is much cooler anyway, so let's just go with the fist pump. Well, I, I've just come out from Nigeria, and um, it's the sort of place I've been to Africa a lot, but there's a lot, sort of place where, um, very matter of fact, the lady I stayed with just gets her flip flop out one day and just goes bam on the floor, little black scorpion. I stopped walking around the house barefoot that day. Um, you walk out into the yard later that afternoon, there's a green mamba. A not particularly nice snake. Um, I'm not really that scared of snakes or spiders. They're not a phobia, but I don't think I like them. Um, I was just looking at other phobias this week on the internet. Here's one that I'd never heard of before. I'd be very impressed if one of you knows what this is. Um, pognophobia. It's the fear of beards. <laughs> so there you go. If um, you are married to someone who's growing a beard and you don't like it, you need to tell them that you're pognophobic and they need to shave their beard. But there we go. And this is an easier one to work out. Can someone work out this one? Ballistophobia. Not blister, ballister. It's the, it's the fear of bullets. I, I don't really know anybody who's not fearful of bullets. <laughs> it's, a, it's a slightly bizarre one. Uh, what about this one? It's a bit of fun. Me-phobia. Uh, fear of becoming so awesome that the human race can't handle it and everybody dies. Uh, I suspect none of us would say that we have a me-phobia. Um, but actually, what I want to help us to see this afternoon is that self-obsession has become an epidemic in the 21st century, particularly in the West. Uh, and it's a much more subtle issue that goes much more deep uh, and may well be a problem that all of us in different ways suffer from. And I want to sort of look at that with you. Uh, I don't know if you've ever come across the TED Talks, um, Technology Education Development. They're sort of little talks um, where people who are high up in their profession just share some anecdotes. And it's a little bit like a desert island discs, learning about someone's life but they talk into a subject. And I listened to one recently by an American model called Cameron Russell. And what she did is she walked onto the stage wearing high heels and a, quite a short skirt and a revealing top. And she's a very attractive lady. And she made the point to the big, con the big crowd that were listening to her. She said, I can change your perception of me just through what I wear. And so she takes off her high heels and slips on some little pumps. She puts a long sarong around her waist that comes down to her ankle and she wears a, a baggy jumper. And suddenly she just looks like a normal girl that would live in the house next door to us. She managed to change our perception of her simply through what she wore. And she shows some pictures of herself when she was a model. And she was a lingerie model. But she shows some pictures of her modelling beachwear. And she made a point in one of them. She said, this picture that you see was me on the front cover of Vogue magazine. But she said, this wasn't me, this was a construction of me. And she says, you've got no idea how many people were working with their computers to change 
the, the physical photo that was taken to be the image that's on the front page of Vogue. She said, it wasn't me. In her talk, she said, image is powerful. It, the way we look has a huge impact on our lives. She also said, image is superficial. I can change the way that you think of me just through the clothes that I wear. And then the last thing's really revealing. She was a, a top model, and she said this, I'm insecure. Interesting for someone who's so glamorous to say, I am insecure. And she said, I'm insecure because I have to think about what I look like every day. She's not talking about getting up in the morning and, and wanting to look our best and thinking about what outfit we wear and putting on some makeup, something normal that many people would do. She's talking about a deep-rooted insecurity because she lives constantly in fear and desiring other people's approval. Now, I don't want to tackle this subject of self-obsession, focusing in on the fashion industry or body image per se. Often we think self-obsession, we might think something like keeping up with the Kardashians, kind of um, pop culture, uh, people who want to make television programs about themselves and let people into their lives, and it's all really about them. Because I suspect none of us are aspiring to be Kim Kardashian. That's one form of self-obsession, but there's a much more subtle form of self-obsession that perhaps is closer to home, and perhaps it's more of an issue that actually we do struggle with and is very, very powerful. See, the problem is, here's a suggestion, I think there are three ways to live. You and I can live our life with God at the centre, which is the way that God created us, for a relationship with him, where our whole life revolves around the creator who made every bone and atom in our body. That's the way we were created, and that's the place for greatest freedom. We can live our life with God at the centre, the second way to live our life is with other people in the centre, not in the sense of serving others, which is a good thing, but in the sense of living in total fear of other people. I constantly need the approval of others. I constantly need to be affirmed. I'm constantly worrying about the way I come across to others. And we live in fear, and actually other people are controlling us. The third way to live our life is for our life to revolve around self. What I want, what I do, what I feel, what I need, what gives me pleasure. I wonder how you live your life. Tim Keller is a, a famous author and writer, American pastor, and he wrote this. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself, but it's thinking of myself less. See, when I think more highly of myself than I should, it exhibits pride. He also argues, and it's quite subtle, when I think very lowly of myself, it's a subtle form of pride, because I become so worried about myself that I'm thinking about myself all the time. But he says that the essence of gospel humility is thinking about myself less. Less references to self, less comparing other people to self. Let me give you a few examples just to work this through. Um, do you ever catch yourself when you're in a conversation, maybe on the phone, it's often over a meal with friends, you're storytelling. You know someone's telling a story, particularly if you've been travelling somewhere, and we're not really listening to the person who's telling the story. All we want to do is for them to finish their story because we've got a better story. And you know you, you sort of cut across people sometimes? Um, oh, you, you, you wrestled this alligator in Africa. Well, I've wrestled this alligator. You know, it's, it's trumping people with a better story. Very self-obsessed. I'm not interested in listening. I just want to talk. And we're a very vocal, fast-moving culture that constantly wants to be speaking. Often is very poor at listening. Uh, the kind of millennials growing up in what's been deemed as the rights generation. Standing on my rights. It's all about me and what I want. 
And what I want, I want now, because life is so instant. And perhaps you'll explore this a bit next week with the technology talk. Um, think about the comfort in the West with uh, the, the idol of comfort. Uh, I want to be comfortable. And as soon as I'm put in a situation in my life where I'm out of my comfort zone, maybe in a social situation with people I don't particularly want to be with, we automatically think of self. I don't want to be here because I don't enjoy their company. Rather than thinking, well, how could I bless and serve the person I'm with, even though I find them a little bit awkward, a bit difficult to be with. Maybe it's this constant worry of the way that we come across to other people. I'm so worried about being misunderstood. I'm so worried about being made to look silly. Think about church. You're in a lovely place as a church where you're smaller and there's a real excitement. As a church gets bigger, uh, change becomes more difficult often because you get used to a certain way of doing things. But you have to think about how to change all the time for the sake of Jesus. Uh, we, we're outgrowing our building and we need to think about having an additional service. It's a challenge to do in a church. And my fear is when we start as elders sharing this idea with the church, for the sake of the gospel, because we want to grow, the first thing often people will think is, how will that affect me? I don't want a second service because I want to be with my friends. I don't want a second service because I'm going to have to get up earlier on a Sunday morning to set up. But what we should be saying is, how will this second service serve other people better? How will it bring more glory to God and give more people opportunity to hear the gospel? But often we just think of self. How is this change going to affect me? So I want to suggest that the problem has become an epidemic because we can so easily, in very subtle ways, become very self-obsessed. Uh, and I've already touched on the cause. Often it's the fear of other people's opinions. Sometimes it's that idea of shame. I'm hiding the real me because I just don't want people to see the real me because I'm ashamed of who I am. Even though God says, you're wonderfully, fearfully made, I love you just as you are. We often just want to cover up who we are because we don't want the real us to be seen by somebody. Sometimes this is just the way we've become because we just get so caught up in ourselves because that is what's going on around us in culture. We would never have described ourselves as a self-obsessed person, but if you stop and think about it, and as I've reflected as I've been preparing, sometimes I think maybe I am self-obsessed. Maybe too much of my world revolves around me. And the problem on the cause is ultimately that we find our identity in the wrong place. See, whatever it is that we most boast in, whatever it is in our life that most concerns us, that thing will shape our identity. And so if the problem is an epidemic, it's something maybe we all struggle with, even in a subtle way, the cause is a misplaced identity. And what's the result? Well, at least in part, I think the result is exhaustion. Are there not many people, and perhaps this is you, that spends a huge amount of energy keeping up a particular appearance? A portrayal of self to others so that you look impressive, so that you're accepted, rather than just being comfortable in our own skin. A huge amount of energy maybe worrying about what other people think of us, as opposed to thinking, what does my Heavenly Father think of me? And what's He said about me? And here's the irony about a self-obsessed life is actually not self-serving. You think a life that revolves around me will serve me, but the irony of self-serving is it doesn't serve me at all. It does me a great deal of harm. I just want to pause there. Uh, we're exploring an issue that's quite subtle, quite poignant, it might dig in our hearts. I'd just love to open this up to a few people. It, 
Anyone got a particular comment or observation that they would make on some of this description of some of the things we've looked at so far? Yeah, that's really helpful. I, I think often we do. When we live our lives centered around ourselves, whatever it is we live for that's a good thing, but is not God, it never really satisfies. See, God created good things for us to enjoy, but when you make a good thing God, God just becomes a good thing. And God was the one who created us to be fully satisfied in him. And good things are good. Good things give pleasure, but good things are not God. And they never give lasting pleasure in the way that he can. So when you see so many people running after self all the time, self-betterment in a job, self-betterment in a bigger pension, bigger bank account, pursuing pleasure, it's not that these things don't give pleasure. It's not that these things aren't good. They just don't truly satisfy in the way that a relationship with God can. And that's why self-obsession is very ironic, because actually it doesn't serve us. We become enslaved to the very thing that we think can set us free. I'm not going to ask you if you feel that you're a self-obsessed person. Uh, I'm not suggesting that self-obsession is inherently selfish in a sense that I want to be selfish. It's just more the sense that if I'm not careful, a lot of life can end up revolving around me. And it's a subtlety that we need to be very careful of. But here's the much more important thing, and this is where we'll begin to get to the Word of God. The question we need to ask this afternoon is, how do you and I become less self-obsessed? And the Bible teaches us that the answer is through making more of Jesus Christ. And that is the essence of humility. Remember Tim Keller? The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's simply thinking about myself less. See, it's really important we understand humility is not about having a low self-esteem. Just thinking, woe is me. There's nothing good about me. I'm hopeless. I'm no good to anyone. That's not humility. Humility is about forgetting self because I'm so free in my relationship with God. I don't need to be consumed and worried by all these things that can so easily define me. There was a man called G.K. Chesterton, many of you will have heard of him in the early 20th century. He's a famous writer and he wrote a wonderful little book called Orthodoxy, which is really describing what the orthodox, genuine Christian faith should look like. And he said something that's quite challenging. I wonder how you'd respond. He said this, how much larger would your life be if you could become smaller in it? See, the most amazing thing about the Christian gospel, when the Christian gospel captures our heart, it takes us to a place where our world doesn't need to revolve around us because it opens up a horizon of something much bigger. There is a God who created this world. He created us for a relationship with him. He's doing something extraordinary to reverse this broken world and he wants to use you and me in it. And when our heart is captured with a bigger vision for life than simply, I wake, I work hard, I make money, I provide for my family, one day I die. The Christian gospel lifts us out of our story and places us into his story, history. The story he's telling. The story where he's at the centre. And that's the place where we find greatest liberation. 
Look at how one psalmist puts it. This is a really powerful psalm. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Just reflect on that scripture for a moment. Let me tell you what this verse is not teaching us. It's not teaching us that life should be an endless church service because everything else we do out there is very worldly and everything we do in here is really godly. It's not causing us, calling us to a kind of monastic life where, as some people in history have done, they literally want to beat the sin out of themselves. It's not talking about that at all. The Bible's really clear. God is interested in all of life. Worship is about all of life. Our paid employment, our unpaid employment, our family time, our leisure time, our work time, the time we spend with friends, the time we spend with enemies. God wants us to worship him in all of life. So here where the psalmist says, this one thing I seek is to gaze upon the glory of the Lord. It's not talking about sitting down in a chair and just contemplating God all of the time, such that I never work, I never play, I never have fun. It's talking about finding God in every aspect of life, but finding my true pleasure and joy in him. I wonder if Nick could come forward and just read and if you could look up 2 Corinthians, please. This is a passage I'd love to look at. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And Nick's just going to read the first five verses. 2 Corinthians is in the New Testament, after the Gospels. Page 1165 in the church. 2 Corinthians 10, 1 to 5. Uh, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you when away. I beg you that when I, when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Thank you. Now the context here is not the context of self-obsession. The context here is Paul is defending his ministry against false teachers. False teachers are challenging him, and he's saying, look, I, I'm not trying to be an impressive orator. Uh, my ministry is about humility, but it's about right thinking, and this is what, why it's really important. He talks here, do you notice in the reading, about tearing down strongholds of wrong thinking and wrong behaviour. Paul recognises that the way that we think has a profound impact on our behaviour. And if I think wrongly about my identity, who I am, if I think wrongly about God's identity, who he is, it will have a profound impact on the way that I live my life. But you notice here, he says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. He's saying here that every unhelpful thought I have Every unhelpful longing that I have in my heart, I take it captive. It's like I want to lock it away because it's not helpful. It distorts my understanding of who God is. It distorts my understanding of myself. I lock it away and what do I do instead? I take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Paul is saying that our thought life is hugely profound in the way that we live our life. Do you ever come across this uh, on a cereal packet, the Shreddies advert, I think it's still around, similar like this. The idea here is keep hunger locked up till lunch. And it's this little uh, sort of gremlin who, who's uh, rattling away in the guy's stomach. And if you eat your Shreddies, it locks him up. 
Think of that image, but apply it to this passage in your thought life. What he's saying is, learn to think correctly. And every time a thought comes to your mind that is not God-honouring, a thought comes to mind that draws way too much attention to self and not enough attention to him, take it captive, lock it away, and it'll escape because you get hungry again, but lock it away again and learn gradually to take our thoughts captive and instead make them obedient to Christ. How does Christ want me to think about this situation I'm in? So take the example of change in a church. I don't want change because change is hard work. I don't want change because I want to be with my friends. I don't want change because I've been at this church all my life and this is the way it should be. There's selfishness in that and Paul would say, lock those thoughts away because this change isn't about you, it's about the glory of God. Instead, take your thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. How will this change serve those around me? How will this change serve my community? How will this change bring glory to God? And it's a real discipline to do this because we don't just get it straight away. If there are areas in our life which we recognise revolve around us far too much, it's going to take a real discipline, a training for us to rethink how we approach that area. But by God's grace and with the help of those around us, we can do that. We take the unhelpful thoughts, make them captive, and we take helpful thoughts and make them obedient to Christ. Well, this 2 Corinthians passage is, I guess... um, a lesson in what to do. What I want to finish with is an example of what this looks like. An example of a gospel humble life that doesn't revolve around self. And what we do is we're going to turn please as a final passage to Luke chapter 1 and we're going to see the example of Mary when she's told that she's going to have a son called Jesus. So if Beth could come up please and we're going to read Luke chapter 1 from verse 39. Just give us a moment to find that. where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, The baby in the womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. For now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Thank you. You might be thinking, well, where are you going with this? How's that little 
um, prayer of Mary relevant to what we're looking at. This is the Magnificat. This is what's often called Mary's song. Just look at verse 46 and 47. God has just done something extraordinary in Mary's life. And what does she say? My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. Self-obsession robs us of the ability to sing like this. Do you, let me ask you a question, do you have a soul that glorifies in the Lord? Do you have a spirit that rejoices in God, your Saviour? There's loads of things in life that can bring us joy and meaning and purpose. But is the ultimate thing your Lord and your Saviour? Is that the thing that most excites you? Is that the thing that most gets you up in the morning? And if it's not, don't beat yourself up. The Christian life is a journey. We learn to put Jesus Christ first and we keep falling down and messing up and we come back to the cross. But the more that we magnify him, the more joy and the more peace we'll experience because he's the only one who can give us the peace that this world can't give. What's extraordinary about Mary's song is that it's not about Mary. It could easily be about Mary because she was the one chosen to bear the Son of God. But Mary's song is not about Mary. That's what's so striking here. Mary's song is about Jesus and about God the Father. Notice what she prays in verse 49. The mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Not a sense of, my goodness, am I not privileged to be the one who's bearing the Son of God? It's all about him. It's not about her. Which is extraordinary when you think there's only one person in history who's ever mothered the Son of God. But she wasn't focused on self, she was focused on God the Father. Here in these re- this reading that was just read, Mary mentions herself three times. Mary mentions God 17 times. That's extraordinary. And she is a great example of the freedom of self-forgetfulness, of gospel humility, because her life doesn't revolve around her. Her life revolves around God. As I close, notice what Mary is able to pray, verse 50. His mercy extends to all who fear him. That's the great joy of go- and gospel freedom when our life doesn't revolve around us, that we can know the mercy of God and we can know the freedom that this mercy brings. But by contrast, notice what he, uh, she prays in verse 51 to 53. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones. He sent the rich away empty. There's never satisfaction in life when life revolves around self because you and I were not created for life to revolve around self. True joy and particularly true peace right in here comes when Jesus Christ is first in our life. So the problem, self-obsession, a very subtle one, not a Kim Kardashian problem. Look at me, look at the world, look at me. Not necessarily inherently selfish but subtly dangerous. Too much of life revolves around self. It's a bit of an epidemic. The cause is ultimately a misplaced identity. I have too small a view of God and too big a view of self. The result, well, at least in part, it's exhaustion. Keeping up appearances. It's all about what other people think of me rather than resting in what God says about me. But the key, friends, how do you and I and how does this church continue as a church that is less self-obsessed? It's a church that makes more and more of Christ. And that is why the gospel is such a wonderful thing. Because if there was anybody who ever walked this earth who should have said, look at me, 
and that quote we had right at the beginning. Let's just whiz back to it. Fear of becoming so awesome the human race can't handle it and everybody dies. There's only one person really who could have said that. He never would have, but it's Jesus Christ. And yet the extraordinary thing is when Jesus Christ came into the world and he should have said, look at me, what did he say instead? I lay down my life in complete surrender. It's not about me. I want to serve the people that I created. And so I want to encourage us to be gospel-centered people who make less of self and make more of God because that is the place of freedom. It's the place of joy and it's the place of true peace. And we won't find that anywhere else. God bless you all. Thank you.